Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, we've got a fascinating conversation with Dr. Anwar Mahajne, an assistant professor from Stonehill College, about her work in cybersecurity and the politics of cybersecurity. This is episode 71 of Untenured Tracks. Um, so recently, I've been interested in technology, uh, specifically I'm focusing on cybersecurity. And the reason, uh, you know, I became interested is I attended a few panels at ISA on cybersecurity uh, because I was previous or the chair of my department uh, before I graduated from my PhD does a lot of work on cybersecurity. Uh, so I attended in solidarity with him and another graduate student that worked with him. And I was kind of, um, it was, I was fascinated by the discussion, but also was concerned because the debate um, at that panel was mainly focused um, on kind of defense, military, and how can we guide this, or how can we regulate cyberspace, meaning, you know, anything that is in the digital realm, how states behave, hacking, you know, should we respond to hacking or not? And if we do, how do we respond, right? Uh, so I, you're familiar with the solar wind hacks and kind of Russia, um, hacking the DNC and other kind of sensitive, um, you know, institutions and uh, places that provide services. I think yesterday one pipeline was shut down because of hacking, <laughs> like an important energy shut, uh, pipeline, if I remember correctly. Uh, I think it, it happened yesterday, so I need to um, go double check. You know, you see that happening constantly, but the discussions has been mainly on how should states kind of respond to attacks in the cyber realm? on hacking, right, on attempts to interfere in elections. And does that equal a kinetic attack or justify a kinetic attack? Like, so if somebody, let's say, if somebody bombs something in the U.S., it's obvious, like, okay, we need a kinetic response, right, to that. Mm -hmm. But if somebody hacks it or steals data, it's different, right? Uh, So these discussions, which are very important and essential, right, uh, but what I was worried about, if the Department of Defense is leading the discussion on these issues, we're kind of rendering uh, human rights concerns, uh, people concerns, right, in the cyber realm as, you know, less important. Mm-hmm. And if civilians are not engaged in the debate about these issues, um, especially in a space that is heavily populated with civilians, right? So we all use the internet. We all use uh, our data as like a big thing. Uh, Our data is the most valuable possession that we have, but also makes us very, you know, it makes us um, exposed as well if somebody hacks it. So as a feminist researcher, I always ask myself, where are the people? Human Mm -hmm. rights, human rights. So kind of bringing um, uh, civilians to the discussion, right? Individual rights to discussion and that's my uh, main interest and I've been working uh, on a few things in that regard one of them I'm working on an edited volume with Alexis Hinshaw and we're asking people to kind of start thinking about cybersecurity and feminism right uh, to think about how for instance disinformation has gendered impact um, what is gender disinformation how can feminism inform our understanding of uh, uh, dynamics in the cyber realm. Uh, I'm working also on a project on data protection and data privacy in the context of Israel-Palestine. So Israel collects lots of biometric data on Palestinians. They also can hack, uh, you know, and the digital realm was very important for Palestinians since, you know, Gaza and the West Bank are physically separated. Um, a lot of Palestinians live in diaspora or are all over the world. So the internet came and kind of unified them, right? It's a way to organize. But that makes them more uh, exposed to, you know, uh, kind of spying, being uh, surveil- like for surveillance, censorship, etc. And um, that's the other thing that I'm thinking about in terms of what's happening. Uh, I don't know if the listeners are... Um, 
and you know paying attention to what's happening in East Jerusalem uh, today. Today's I guess May tenth, but it has been happening for uh, um, a few days. Uh, but one of the issues that uh, a Palestinian activist on the ground has was uh, Instagram was deleting posts or kind of showing that they're not available. Um, and I am also thinking of in terms of collaboration between social media giants, Facebook, Instagram, and state institutions, and how when we talk about in the U.S., for instance, we keep talking about how these um, how Facebook needs to be accountable and need to kind of monitor speech and make decisions about what is considered like uh, fake news and not fake news, right? Disinformation, disinformation, but also could be really dangerous because that if let's say. Um, a state and authoritarian government could ask Facebook to monitor certain speeches and label certain speeches as, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, violent, no. then that means you can suppress legitimate resistance as well, right? And kind of, um, uh, yeah, kind of marginalize these voices. Um, so we're just constant, I'm constantly thinking about these things um, and I'm very excited about it. It's a new area for me, so I can't call myself an expert, but I'm definitely like, this is something that um, whenever I talk about it, I'm like, yeah, I want to write this, you know, like uh, it's something that I do care about and it's something that I, I think is important. Um, and I guess that's a kind of a development after the pandemic where I promised myself that I will write about things that I care about now because I, I feel like I have to. <laughs> It just when you lose that connection to your writing and for me to activism, mm-hmm. it just the profession becomes <laughs> just a burden. Honestly, it doesn't. There's no, um, it, you know, when you lose the passion and the fire, you're not even a good teacher as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good professor. Uh, so it's a, I guess it's a uh, maybe a pandemic development, but also you know I'm uh, getting more comfortable on my job. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. No. A lot. Uh, of insight to unpack there. <laughs> um, so I, I, the one thing that I want to ask um, you, because uh, this is really for my own curiosity because I, I don't know anything about this. Um, you had mentioned gender disinformation um, and I'm, I'm curious what that means. Yeah, so I mean, not a lot of research has been done just yet, but multiple reports, reports have been um, published. And it shows how, for instance, female candidates get attacked more <laughs> on social media. Um, you know, there's, of course, the sexism that comes with it, um, uh, you know, threats of rape, threats of, uh, you know, like sexual violence. Mm-hmm. But you see that uh, female candidates get targeted more often with this information mm-hmm. uh, than male candidates. And these are initial reports, uh, but it's an interesting area to kind of go and examine, right, in that sense. Um, so it's just, uh, that's why we're inviting people to think about these issues mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll get like good contributions. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you will. I have no doubt. No, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and I think one of those things that people, it's, it's not surprising, but I, I think like probably really scary is how, how deep it runs. Right. Because we only see it at like a national level, but thinking about like local campaigns, which matter way more. <laughs> like it, I, I imagine that there are a lot of women running in local elections that have kind of been put through the ringer on like local Facebook groups and stuff like that. Um, it's probably a pretty abhorrent behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, gosh, where do I want to go with this? Part of a theme of this podcast is me trying to talk my way into questions and kind of collect my thoughts and ramble as a way of doing that. Um, so the the Instagram stuff with the deleted with the posts going missing, um, not just in in what, what's with what's happening in Palestine, right, but with also like missing and murdered Indigenous women, mm-hmm. um, and all of the red shirt campaign stuff, um, just vanishing and instagram saying like oh i don't know <laughs> we don't know what happened somebody tripped over a cord <laughs> just all happened to disappear and that's really that's the claim they actually made after activists complained they said oh it was a glitch <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't make any sense right and it's just <laughs> and and like it's sad that that's that excuse is good enough for people mm-hmm. that a lot of this like really important work is being erased. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, it's, um, 
they don't really have to erase it. You can like manipulate the algorithm to, you know, not show it or not give it the same publicity or, you mm-hmm. know, visibility, I guess. Is yeah. Yeah. And, but that gives them a lot of power because if you have control over, you know, I mean, I see why we do have to regulate what's being posted, especially with what happened and, you know, the presidency of Trump and all the you know, disinformation campaigns, QAnon and all the stuff that are happening and all, especially disinformation when it comes to COVID. Oh, it's a, either a hoax or a China, made in a Chinese lab or the government is using it to, uh, you know, to implement socialism, whatever. I mean, there are so many conspiracy theories about it. Um, and I do see the importance of kind of uh, trying to label things. Okay, this is not true. This might be fake, right? <laughs> this is not. But then if you give them so much power to control the narrative, that's um, that could be really, really dangerous in context, again, where, you don't have uh, fair laws, right? You not everyone is being treated equal. So let's say it's the same in the context of terrorism, right? You can label anyone as terrorist and like just say he's a terrorist because he's opposing the government. So let me put put him in prison. Mm-hmm. Like kind of to show that sometimes these regulations could be abused mm-hmm. by states or entities that view themselves above, you know, international law in general, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about state entities um, who are, and they're not even, you know, they don't account, like, what is domestic law at this point? You know? <laughs> um, so it is very dangerous that they are able to control the narrative. But again, you know, people say, like, okay, let's maybe organize offline, but it's just, it's hard because we, have, we use these technologies, we rely on them, on it for, for our for everything like really i can't function without my phone mm-hmm. and i just watched the social dilemma recently mm-hmm. and i don't know if you've seen it's a uh, documentary on netflix about uh you know social media and i think they said something in the documentary that i didn't think about it's like there's only a few industries that call the people like consumers users it's the drug you know like <laughs> drug dealers and face and social media giant mm-hmm. and then uh, another thing they said you know, a tool waits for you, right? So a bike is a tool. It's there for you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't demand much from you, but your phone demands your attention 24-7. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not, should I check my phone when I wake up, like, after I uh, ate breakfast or before? You know, it's not like you can put it aside and not check it. Sometimes you feel the urge to check it as soon as you wake up, right? Yep. But the thing is, we rely on social media for a variety of reasons. One of, we're addicted to it. Mm. Two, it's just you can't function in this, you know, in this age, in this, like without using social media mm-hmm. um, and without using the internet in general. COVID made it even more necessary to have yeah. access to the internet and use social media in order to connect to people. So it is, they do have, it's helpful, but it gives people who own the data and own kind of the, who can regulate these spaces so much power Mm -hmm. that if you're a user who's not paying attention, right, um, your data could be abused. You don't pay attention to the uh, subtle messages that you get. And if you're not, uh, you you weren't taught to identify misinformation, disinformation, identify, uh, you know, how power dynamics and inequality translates from the physical sphere to the, the digital sphere. Um, then, I mean, you can be engaged, you know, in uh, kind of promoting and perpetuating these inequalities and these power dynamics. Um, you know, you, you might not know that you're doing that, but you are actively doing that as well. Yeah, yeah. It, it's become like a pet peeve of mine when people will complain about like, uh you know, I, I talked about looking for a new pair of shoes and then I got all these sponsored ads for these types of shoes. Oh, that's weird. Ha ha ha. Like, no, that's creepy. And like, that should really upset you and make you stop using those things. Um, but it, it, it doesn't. Um, and 
Yeah, yeah. I I have been involved in a lot of like stuff locally, and I've I've encouraged so many times people to to stop using Facebook as a way to organize. And like there there are better. I mean, there are old school ways that like worked for a reason. Um, that that could definitely still work today, and are are probably safer. Um, but it sometimes it's like yelling into the wind, like. We need Facebook. We have to have Facebook. It's the only way we can organize and like trying to get over, trying to find ways to get people past that mentality of like Facebook is, is the singular way that we can get out uh, awareness of our events, that we can make sure people know that meetings are coming up is just <laughs> so unfortunate, right? Yeah. Um, I think. You know, Facebook also, as a, as a political tool for organizing, gained more attention during the Arab Spring. You know, like mm-hmm. the Facebook revolution, uh, Twitter as well was involved. But, you know, the, the research that I've read says that initially, you know, these platforms were helpful for organizing. But when states became more and more sophisticated, understanding how to use that to their own advantage... Mm-hmm from being a tool for political organizing or promoting democracy and kind of uh, human rights to a tool that is there for surveillance, censorship, and controlling the message, right? Yes. Um, I tell my students, I teach a class on fake news, um, which has been a very fun class. It's my first time teaching it. So I tell my students, we're learning together and keep unfolding. Um, You know, with, uh, with fake news, you don't really have to make up a story that's not what disinformation is all about i mean some of it is making up stories but kind of you know having a true event and then sprinkling kind of some doubt on some fact here and there or kind of adding a little bit to it Mm -hmm. Um, and that's actually the most effective thing right Mm -hmm. or denying that look or saying that you're the only one who knows the truth Mm -hmm. right um, so it, it, with disinformation, kind of uh, controlling the narrative, really all what you have to do is um, use already existing uh, tension. So, for instance, the Soviet Union utilized this strategy, um, you know, when, uh, with the uh, lynching in the U.S. back um, in the day. Uh, so they would use that or they used that um, to kind of... Uh, yeah, I think the I can't remember the name of the poster, but there's a poster that they produced, um, kind of reporting on lynching incidents in the United States, especially an incident in Texas. Um, and then they gave it to African countries <laughs> to kind of you know control that Cold War narrative too, as well. And it was used as a way. So they're not faking it; it was happening. Tension is happening, right? The racial injustice has been you know a part of U.S. history for as long as the country, you know, for as old as the country. Uh, but what they did is just like giving that information out to people with a strategy, political goal in mind, right? And it's not to promote racial racial equality in the United States. But no, to show kind of weaken the United States. In that mm-hmm. uh, so you know, like with uh, with a lot of things, you just use existing tension, <laughs> <laughs> try to stir the pot a little bit more, mm-hmm. and let it play out. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's so. Like I, I'm, I told you before we started recording. I, I'm teaching sociology of revolutions, um, and it's it's been like. Uh, an experience for me. Like I, I just kind of wandered into historical criminology and um, this is very much where I wish I would have started my career. Um, but like one of the questions that I, I hope to ask in person when I, I teach this again is uh, like, do students think that the internet was a good idea? <laughs> like thinking about revolutions in terms of technology um, because I, I have a whole thing against like cars <laughs> <laughs> like car culture is is gross and and what's the, what was the worst uh uh invention for humanity the internet or the combustion engine <laughs> and just kind of set set people off on like could i live without my car could i live without my phone <laughs> which would i sooner give up but um i yeah like you're absolutely right the idea of surveillance and and disinformation and propaganda like some days it feels like um 
So I'm a, I am a big horror movie fan, and in, in slashers, there is this, this trope of the like crazy old man in town that, that warns off the kids who are coming on summer break, like, you're gonna like you're gonna meet your doom here, and this is the end of the world. You're all gonna die. It feels like social media has just become nothing but the crazy old uh, <laughs> prophets of doom every every single day. Like this is this is the end of the world if you don't listen to me. Um, <laughs> type of stuff, and it's so it's so exhausting. Yeah, no, definitely, uh, and you know, I do feel it too. Like I try, and I know better, you know, and I tell myself that I know better. <laughs> I keep like you know swiping and scrolling sometimes without even paying attention to it, like not even looking at the pictures. I'm like, really, my son is playing right there. I'm gonna go play with them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, you know, the, the like. Uh, I think it's an interesting thing to think of social media for revolutionary purposes. And yet it was promising in the beginning. Um, but now we are more and more aware of the consequences of using social media for organizing in different contexts. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, and it's, uh, I mean, it is, you know, I, I do like the internet, <laughs> uh, but I think more uh, like educating people about what's happening and how can you become a conscious user. Yeah. Uh, I can't use that word anymore without like thinking <laughs> of drug use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, is essential um, and also finding ways to, international you know agreements and international kind of code of conduct and norms to what is acceptable right um when it comes to people's data and how states utilize their access to data um uh, for their own political purposes right Um, Mm -hmm. well i I can i can tell you and to folks listening that uh, a few months ago i deleted my email from my phone and I took all of my social media apps off my phone, except for Instagram, which is really just pictures of my dogs <laughs> and like random screenshots from from different screenplays. Um, and I survived, <laughs> and it's and it's okay. And I've I've implemented in my classes like uh, on the first day, I, I tell them I'm not going to check my email, I'm not going to respond to you on the weekend because that's my time and that's your time, and you shouldn't be emailing me on the weekend anyway. Um, and in the fall, I'm going to expand that to, uh, not only the weekend, but not after, not after five o'clock. Like (laughs) it's not, it is not, uh, fair, um, to, to expect me to be available to you 20, like literally 24 hours a day. And I know, you know, that's the other thing. Uh, students expect you to respond to them like uh, on the weekend or after 5 p.m. I look at my husband. I don't know if it's like academia. That, <laughs> I don't know if the lines between your personal life and, you know, work life. But my husband, you know, it's 9 to 5. Um, he doesn't even have access to his email because it's secured medical data. Um, mm-hmm. He's physically in the, uh, in, in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But that's it, 9 to 5, no weekends. It's it's a good life. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I'm jealous. I was like, <laughs> you don't look at your email after five o'clock, you know? Yeah. I think uh, academia kind of turned into a competition about who can burn themselves out the most. I know. <laughs> and, I know. And I was thinking like, I now think to myself, like what I'm doing now, how will it kind of advance my career and advance me, you know, make me a better scholar, a better teacher. And sometimes, honestly, I just feel obligated to do things without any like added benefit to my life. Right. <laughs> uh, so it's just like the culture of business, kind of pretending that you're busy all the time and you have to think about a new project. And that's why I started saying, I want to write about things that I care about. And one of the things I like being in a liberal arts institution, it's not a research institution, you know. First of all, I like my interactions with the students and I like the feedback loop, you know, like kind of, okay, what are you interested in? This is what I'm interested in. Kind of we're learning uh, by interacting with one another. Uh, But also, you know, I'm designing the classes in a way um, that is relevant to my research interests. I said I taught a class on cybersecurity, a class on uh, disinformation, um, and I try to tie that to my research. Mm-hmm. 
usually after I teach a class, I either, you know, publish a, I like writing op-eds. I think they're, um, you know, because they're accessible to the public and mm -hmm. uh, they, I, I have fun writing. Them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do try to write something that is mm -hmm. relevant to the research I'm doing. And I also ask myself, what is the added benefit to the people that I'm studying as well, right? Um, so you know in the context of israel palestine and i, I do um, i have an interest in there because i am from there i moved to the u.s in 2011 so it does have kind of a special place mm -hmm. um, uh, you know in my life um because of me being from the region but um, you know the, the conflict everyone is familiar with it but i don't know if everyone really knows about it <laughs> you know yeah, I, I, i don't think that everybody <laughs> I, mean, I know that everybody doesn't, right? I mean, I'm sure you saw the the tweet. I forget what what department it was in the Israeli government, but saying like this is just a real estate dispute that's happening. Yeah, it's like, a ministry. Like how 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 like for like how <laughs> like the the audacity? Like it, it's not surprising, but it it always it always is when when governments and this is not an Israel specific thing, but when when governments just are, are so blatant yeah. <laughs> about, about things like that, you know? Um, and I know that stuff gets, stuff is way too, uh, how do I put this? Uh, George Orwell is, is invoked way too frequently, <laughs> I think for, <laughs> for things like this, but this is very clearly like an appropriate <laughs> example. Uh, don't believe your eyes, believe what, what we're telling you about this. Like, give me a break. <laughs> Yeah, oh, God, that tweet, that was, like, seriously. I mean, talking about uh, kind of changing the narrative. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're masters at doing that. Like, state institutions in Israel are experts. Like, it's amazing how you just, a little bit of framing. There's a tweet, I need to find it again, but somebody kind of rewrote a title about the conflict mm -hmm. and changed it, you know, occupation to eviction to actually, you know, saying expulsion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, like to describe reality, but you see how reporting even about the incident, um, you know, it's not, it doesn't give it justice to what's mm -hmm. happening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's a real estate dispute. If you want it to be an actual real estate dispute, allow Palestinians to make similar claims to the homes they left in West Jerusalem, right? Why are you giving settlers uh, the possibility of making these claims in on homes in East Jerusalem, right? It mm -hmm. just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I saw in the, the very brief amount of time I was on Twitter this morning, I saw something about a book that Jimmy Carter wrote in 2006 about how Israel may become a neo-apartheid. And I mean, I, I wasn't following stuff back then. That was, I had just gotten married and started my PhD. So that was way out ahead of my realm. Mm -hmm. But apparently President Carter got a lot of, a lot of grief for that, that book at the time. And, and to see people now looking back, um, however many years later saying like, no, Jimmy Carter may have actually had, <laughs> had a point, um, is, I don't want to say I don't. I don't even know what I want to say, but I guess just typical of Jimmy Carter's <laughs> life that, well, after the fact, it's like, oh, maybe we should have listened to Jimmy Carter. Um, I think I read that book. Yeah. You know these prophecies. I mean, Israel is headed that way and has been headed that way for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, there, I saw a survey online. I think uh, they wrote an article about it. Her name is Dalia or something. Um, but she did a survey with another colleague of hers, um, talking about okay, we're you know, people don't want you to use the word apartheid, but they go and she surveyed Israelis and Palestinians about the reality on the ground. And the conclusion is, okay, you might want to disagree on the term, but people on the ground actually know <laughs> that it is happening. <laughs> Israelis, like Jewish Israelis and Palestinians are not like, uh, there's no delusion there uh, about what's happening. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, controlling the narrative, it is especially for U.S. donors, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, we can we could talk about the the research side of this for forever. I feel like, but um, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about how you bring um, your work into the classroom, which I, I have to imagine is probably a really uh, challenging, but hopefully fulfilling experience for um, uh, what I'm presuming are, are mostly American students um, who may be 
uh, uninformed, <laughs> I guess, um, about a lot of these, a lot of these issues, especially because this is a generation that has, um, majority of them have grown up, um, with, with online connections. And, uh, if this makes sense, um, there was one other question that I wanted to ask about your scholarship, but I think this, this might be a good way to bridge into the teaching. So you had mentioned, um, this idea of like, what does cyber collateral damage look like? Um, so like if there was like a, a, an actual bombing and then there's a, 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 a kinetic response, you said, um, then clearly, and like, we have a billion examples of this, unfortunately, in American history, right? Um, I, and I'm not laughing out of disrespect. I'm laughing because it's like a nervous <laughs> laughter that I unfortunately have as a take. Um, uh, but you know, cases of like hospitals being bombed or something like that. So what is, what is the cyber equivalent of that? And is that something that can can students see themselves as potential collateral damage and and sort of disinformation campaigns and things like that if that if that makes sense yeah yeah it does so um initially when i taught my cybersecurity class before teaching the disinformation class and i followed with a disinformation class because my students in cybersecurity expressed interest mm-hmm. in a class on disinformation and that's again kind of i also sometimes when i get a chance to design a course um it's a lot of work because new preps are a lot of work yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> um, i do try to get those see what students are interested in right um and then it happened that it is related to, to my area of interest the emerging area of interest uh, so in cybersecurity, we start out with talking about realism in cybersecurity, say behavior right how should we regulate it's a new emerging area um you know we're st- still trying to understand how to respond do laws in the physical realm apply to laws and apply to the digital realm and the fact that there are no borders in in the cyber world right so you don't have actual physical borders to say the jurisdiction of the state starts here and ends there right Mm -hmm. borders Uh, we talk about masking ip addresses so a hacker could be let's say you could have a russian hacker in iran Right, or masking their IP to be in a country that is not um, the main country. Mm-hmm. How do you make decisions? So the attribution problem, like attributing mm-hmm. the actors responsible for that. Um, how do we know if it's the state who are, are doing this or just rogue actors? Are they criminals? Are they terrorists? Right, mm-hmm. and now even terrorist groups are paying more attention to um, hacking and the cyber realm as an important thing. Mm-hmm. So we talk about all these complications that come with kind of trying to regulate cyberspace in general, mm-hmm. and then we start talking about uh, a cyber pearl harbor. What does it look like? Mm-hmm. Right? So another thing is uh, we've never had a situation where a lot of civilians died from a cyber attack or a hack, mm-hmm. or whatever, but it's not far off. All you have to do is shut down the power grid that mm-hmm. is attached to a hospital and there are babies in the NICU who need mm-hmm. the, the electricity, right? Or somebody in the middle of the surgery mm-hmm. uh, or maybe poison water supply. Mm-hmm. Um and I show them usually this documentary from Vice News where they interview uh, Israeli hackers. You know, Israel is known for their cybersecurity capabilities, startup nation. <laughs> and it is, if I, I could speak about it for hours, but it's tied to its military um, mm-hmm. unit, especially Unit 8200, and its relationship to the Palestinians, <laughs> right? So that's how they develop cyber, cyber capabilities because they have testing they can test it on Palestinians, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the hacker said, you know, Israeli hackers are known for, you know, um, for that for their sophisticated methods, right? Uh, so he said he believed that there is uh, like um, a Trojan horse or dormant, um, you know, uh, kind of viruses or, or you know, code, the dormant code in in every system that is ready to be activated, like sleeper agents, right? Wow, I didn't know. I, re- I never thought of it like that before. That's, that's terrifying. <laughs> they're just, you know, they're waiting for it to be activated. And sometimes these codes are just sitting there collecting information, but you can activate them like this. Um, mm-hmm. The thing is, when you activate it, you run to the risk of being detected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what happened, let's say, in the 2010 um, um, or the Stuxnet incident uh, in Iran with the centrifuges where they kept 
you know, um, uh, mal- malfunctioning and they didn't know why <laughs> until a Dutch company came to troubleshoot and they found they're like, okay, that something is attacking your system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like these tiny things and, and just to think about that it's there ready to be activated uh, is terrifying. And the fact that even though we don't have yet like large scale civilian like life loss due to attacks in the cyber realm, that's mm-hmm. not far off. Let's say you're hacking into a nuclear facility and launch a nuclear missile, you know, so there's so many ways to think about this. Um that could be very apocalyptic. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about it really. It's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I have something to dwell on <laughs> now for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, so that's what we kind of start talking about for them to start actually visualizing that happening and how it's not that far and then in the in the documentary documentary they actually hack into a car mm-hmm. and speed they like uh, manipulate the brakes so anybody could kill you from distance right yeah. um, so it kind of to make it real to them because it is you know, without thinking about it you're like um, I mean what is the cyber war how does it look mm-hmm. like is it going to affect me am I going to lose my life or are innocent people going to lose their lives there is a possibility that that might happen mm-hmm. It hasn't happened yet. I hope it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so if I am if I am uh, nervous about <laughs> this as a uh, professional adult, that I, I have to imagine that your students' reactions to to this material um, must be kind of intense sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, on top of these things, I teach classes on terrorism. Um, I teach it, uh, you know, uh, about controversial top controversial, not for me, but you know, like for yeah. student population that is mainly white, um, mainly from New England. Like, it's not a very diverse uh, student group. I love that, but you know. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, I, yeah, I, I understand exactly what uh, you mean. <laughs> um. So you know, as some, uh, and you know, my identity also plays into how I interact with students about these issues and how I feel about it. Uh, so I grew up in a Muslim family. I'm Palestinian with Israeli citizenship. I'm an immigrant to the United States. So <laughs> kind of like it's a layers um, added to the regular discussion. So I do have personal experience, which could be valuable, but that also means that, um, you know, I feel really exhausted and drained, especially on days when we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or we mm-hmm. talk about uh, Islam and terrorist groups. You know, like things that do affect my daily life and part of my uh, lived experience. Mm-hmm. I know that students genu- genuinely don't know, and my students really want to learn. But yeah, you know, you sh- I shock them all the time. Uh, and I do want to do that. Mm-hmm. I do want to like kind of help them see it. Um, differently and have a more comprehensive understanding of world politics and the Middle East and like, you know, nothing is simple, as simple as they think it is. Uh, And, you know, when they have the aha moment, it's very valuable, but that means that I come back home very drained. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking about this, like navigating discussions about Israel, Palestine in that you know, especially under Trump's administration and the uh, comfort the comfort that the ultra-right or you know, not neo-Nazis, let's call them that, yeah. uh, felt is like you don't want to perpetuate these. Like you don't, you want to be able to critique Israel as a state, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, be mindful of these extremist narratives towards the Jewish community in the United States. And that's, it's just, um, um, it's kind of like a delicate balance that you yeah. have to uh, maintain. Um, so, I mean, you know, I also try to problematize things like racial um, inequality, right? I want to, I tell them, you know, uh, oppression, um, like it's not, <laughs> it's not a clear, it's not a clear cut. So I always um, 
tell them the story of how Arabs owned slaves. And there uh-huh. are, and in Libya, we'll bring up the, the examples of uh, African migrants going through Libya to come to Europe. And I tell them that um, also Arabs hold racist views, right? And I have to highlight that the complexity of this, right? So I am experiencing as an Arab, um, a minority in Israel, a minority in the U.S., I'm experiencing all these different kind of um, layers of oppression and kind of power hierarchies. But that doesn't mean that my people are not perpetuating some of it, right? Uh, And kind of to complicate that for them, that Mm. you need to understand the situation better. Um, So it's good. my, My word of the day is always... It, when they say it's complicated, I was like, yes, I did my job, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's when they tell me that they know, and yeah. like, no. Yeah, it, I, I have found that, like, finding ways to shock students through nuance is, is probably the best thing that we can do. Um, and honestly, like, once I... And, and so this is a question that I've asked a lot of people before, um, is... is your thoughts on the idea of, of being objective. Um, once I stopped caring about that and, and recognize that it's, it's really a myth, um, that this idea of this sort of clinical objectivity and looking at crime completely objectively, um, only, only means that you're reinforcing state narratives of crime was yeah. <laughs> was kind of like, uh, uh, a mind blowing moment for me, but like using, using my own, um, background, um, as a way to like surprise students. So I live in Northeastern Pennsylvania. Um, and a few years ago, um, I, during a holiday break, I went on a deep dive into my family's, um, genealogy. And I discovered (laughs) that, um, on my, on my mother's side, um, I can trace our lineage in the U.S. back to the 1600s. Um, and I'm related to um, the person who uh, led the charge to colonize northeastern Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, which was like a, I'm not a religious person, but having that, like, like realizing that of all the places I could have moved to, it was the place that I'm related to the, to the colonizing family was weird. Um, there's a, a state park here with a lake named after his granddaughter who was kidnapped by the indigenous um, people here. Um, and she, she eventually um, assimilated into the, the nation um, and moved with them to Ohio, I think, um, as they were, they were pushed out of Pennsylvania. But um, so being able to tell students that, <laughs> like, so I have this, this British part of my family history where I can, I can trace founding three cities in the U.S. to my, my background. And then my Polish side is very, very different. Um, and then talking about like the ways that um, people in Poland uh, have experienced oppression um, throughout European history and like the role of, of Polish troops in the Haitian Revolution um, as like an especially powerful story. Um, and then concluding all of that by saying like, so if if we're we're really concerned about like creating a just society, um, why don't we give northeastern Pennsylvania back? And they're like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> because the area consistently ranks on like the top ten worst places to live, <laughs> and students who live here, uh, they will they hate it. Like they, it's and it's beautiful here, um, but they will badmouth um, where they live uh, until they're blue in the face, you know. And so I'll say, "Okay, well, why don't you give it back?" And then it's like, wait, what? I'm like, well, I have authority to say that. Like, I can trace family here 300 years ago. And I'm saying, maybe, what? why not give it back? You know, if, you, if it sucks here so much, you know, if you hate Wilkes-Barre so much, uh, move and, and give it back. And it's like this baffling, like I've said, why don't you jump to the moon? <laughs> Well, I mean, personal experiences, um, I think in my case helped a lot, but mm-hmm. it also it, it increases like the um, level of emotional labor. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And like my, I have the, I have the comfort of, of 
centuries <laughs> of, of disconnection. So I know it's, it's an apples to oranges thing, but like finding ways to, to do that. Um, yeah. And, so and frequently that makes that it that real that for them. The other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about like being objective, what is being objective really is. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be complacent, right? Because yeah. Be called objective. I, I, we always question what objective means in my methods classes, right? Mm-hmm. That reflexivity, reflexivity and positionality and how that like affects you know, your relationship to the people you're working with. Even the research question that you come up with, your interests, where does it come from? Yeah. And we kind of try to unpack that as well. But like, you know, I tell my students where I come from. I tell Mm -hmm. them where I am and who I am. So that's my part. Like, that's what I, that's, I think being transparent is how I Mm -hmm. um, try to show that I'm objective. It's like, this is who I am and this is what I think. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, like we have a discussion about certain assumptions that they have as well and try to show them the angle that they're missing. And I tell them, you know, it's not about really a lot of these students, not like they don't know the truth. They only know partial truth. So mm-hmm. I tell them that's dangerous and we start comparing things. So um, I tell them what I'm doing is adding another layer, another kind of um, uh, layer to the story, adding something missing to the story. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I bring up the example, for instance, um, in Israel in 2006, the w- the war with Lebanon, right? That was kind of the first time I started paying attention to the news. And I would like watch Al Jazeera and I have the luxury of kind of listening to the news in Hebrew and Arabic and in English. So I would go to Al Jazeera in Arabic and kind of see the reports of um, devastation in Beirut on the Lebanese side, right? And then I go to Arutstein, which is like one of the Israelis' um, news uh channel and i see kind of the reports about 18 year olds dying in this war you know and and at the end each side will say oh and this number died on the other side right so it's just like the attention they also pay to the story and it is all about stories and narratives right what is the story what are the stories that we're trying to tell and why are we telling them that way Mm -hmm. Uh, humans tend to want to listen to stories where wired that way right to get information mm-hmm. also the person who controls the story controls the narrative and controls kind of the way we react to what's happening around us right mm-hmm. especially when we're not able to observe it firsthand but even sometimes when we do observe it firsthand mm-hmm. um, we tend to kind of see what we want to see and we talk about cognitive dissonance and kind of how we reject anything that contradicts our worldview even if it's presented to us right mm-hmm. um, so yeah I mean what is objective really um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I uh yeah. Also try to complicate. So my classes can be, they can be really, really fun. Uh, and then they can be really, really intense. <laughs> so it depends. <laughs> which is, which is what we're hoping to accomplish, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, if I uh, send somebody going home quest, like with a question about things that they yeah. call it a win. Like, it's not. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious um, as far as, so, I mean, I have to assume that when you're, excuse me, when you're when you're teaching about you know conflicts in, with Israel and Palestine, that students have a lot of uh, misconceptions about what's happening there. But I I'm, I think I'm more curious about the cybersecurity side of things. Um, broadly speaking, are there are there myths that students have um, as, as they come into your classes about um, just cybersecurity in general and and what does it mean and, and how does it affect them that you find yourself having to debunk? And initially, I'd, you know, students come not knowing what to think when it comes to cybersecurity, right? They just hear small, like little anecdotes here and there on the, like on the news or in the media, but they don't know the complexity of the issue, right? It's one thing that they know, but like people don't think about it as much. It's mm-hmm. a topic, even for us researchers. Not everyone kind of thinks about these issues, right? Um, so they, I do open their minds to these things, and it's kind of a new area where I do have a lot of um, flexibility there, and less I face less resistance, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not a um, it's not a topic that they come with misconceptions about. It's not a topic that um, 
has been politicized in a way, right? Uh, it's just a, it's a topic that we're still thinking through and nobody has claimed it. No side has claimed it yet. Um, and that's actually the, the beauty of it is I do have more flexibility there because there's less resistance. So mm. uh, the conversations tend, well, um, I mean, you know, you, there are benefits to kind of having the back and forth about certain issues that they mm. do have misconceptions about. But with this one, I get to cover more, right? Um, and I know that it sticks with them for a long, long time because a lot of my students are now either considering to do cybersecurity work with, uh, you know, the, with the, the FBI or other kind of government agencies or like they're uh, considering practic- practicing cybersecurity law. And, you know, these people who didn't have enough information about it and after class, they thought, oh, well, that's an important issue that I need to get mm-hmm. As for the disinformation element of that, which is a second class, but it is tied to cybersecurity in a way, mm-hmm. um, a lot of my students didn't know. So everyone, when they hear fake news, they think of Trump. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that uh, how far back uh, the use of disinformation uh, has been a strategy, right? So we talk, um, we talk about it in the context of the Cold War a lot. You know, measures. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union is very like it's not a new thing for them. The Internet Research Agency is not something new. Of course, it's more advanced because technology has changed. But they've been uh, they've been uh, viewing that as a, as an effective strategy for a long, long, long time. And just talking about how the extent of how deep that runs right in politics that shocks them mm-hmm. and then um i also found out like also again talking about disinformation in contexts such as israel palestine iran gender disinformation these new topics that go beyond just trump and fake news uh was also kind of important for them and foundational like kind of aha moment there mm-hmm. uh, and in the class, we always, I always, uh, or one of the assignments was to kind of communicate something new that we learned to their family members, to their um, kind of, you know, kind of explain to them what we learned and also hear back from them about what they know. Mm-hmm. Everyone was shocked to see that their family members don't know anything about these things, right? Mm-hmm. And we do this test, uh, it's called Spot the Troll. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> where they give fake accounts or true accounts and you kind of choose if it's true or not. And a lot of them failed identifying <laughs> the trolls. So it just, all these things were like, oh, I got this. I know better. But then, no, you don't know better. Experts even sometimes can't <laughs> figure it out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just um, <laughs> yeah, complicating issues. It's all about complicating issues for them, like Fake news equals Trump. Yeah, I mean, he publicized the term, but uh, actually Russians have been <laughs> utilizing this as a strategy for a long, long, long time. Um, and also, like, um, I think I, I brought in a Palestinian activist to talk about, he actually does a lot of work, not only on Israel-Palestine, but generally on Facebook and disinformation. Uh, but he was talking about himself, he brought himself as an example, <laughs> where some groups labeled him as a terrorist because of his work. <laughs> And he said, like, look, this is kind of one type of disinformation, right? <laughs> um, a once-in-a-lifetime experience for your students to talk to a, an honest-to-goodness terrorist. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then the other thing we talk about is, like, okay, how do you rehabilitate people? Yeah. So we talk about rehabilitation in terms of terrorism, right? Mm. Uh, about, like, you know, how to prevent or counter violent extremism or whatever. Mm. But what if that person who's being radicalized by disinformation, Canon members, are your uh, parents or your grandma or, you know, they're not like your typical, like, you know, radical person. They're just people in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of strategies can you use to mm-hmm. do that? And we, you know, we talk about like kind of the platforming, that's when you prevent you know, apps like Parler and all of that from hosting these conversations and groups like that. Uh, but like deeper into it, how do you do de-radicalize people, not outside of the U.S., but in the U.S., and that's a different context for them to think about is thinking about it, not those Muslims out there, mm-hmm. right, or this, the immigrants, but actually like people in our lives. Yeah. Uh, 
And I had amazing, amazing videos. Honestly, this is the, one of the assignments that I'm proud of because students interviewed their family members. So students who their family came from, let's say, Panama and other places, interviewed them about this information. Um, they've discovered new things about themselves and their family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought that was fascinating and also learned new stuff while able, being able to educate others. And that's why I think it's important. Like part of the assignment was, okay, I do want them to learn critical thinking, but also this information is uh, like, I want them to tie that to activism in a way of kind of using class material to shape the discourse and change the narrative as well. Yeah. I've, I've been toying with uh, doing an interview assignment for some of my classes for a while, but I just don't have the guts to, <laughs> to, to, to do it. And I, I also don't know exactly what, like how I want to frame it. Like, I can help you with what I have. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Cause I, I think like the community that I, that I'm, I'm living in and working in is, is becoming more diverse. Um, and, and I think that it would be an opportunity for students to like you said to learn a lot about themselves because I, I don't know how much communication is sort of happening intergenerationally about issues around crime and justice and I think it would just be kind of voyeuristically <laughs> kind of like fascinating to hear um what some of their parents might have to say about like issues involving like organized crime um for especially for students coming from parts of the world where that's a, a bigger or more visible problem, let's say, because um, certainly it's, I mean, it's Northeastern Pennsylvania. It's, it's here. Um, uh, but like, just like issues like that, I think would be really, be really interesting to kind of, to kind of hear um, how that knowledge is, is transmitted um, by generations. Like, um, surprised me like in a good way with these mm-hmm. interviews. Um, I thought they were fascinating and I, I'm happy to share. I also use podcast assignments and other stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, uh, since starting this, I've been assigning podcasts, um, having students make them and it's, it's really just been like, go make a podcast about something. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, those are, are so fascinating too. And like, just to hear how students want to like, so I have them take a major case and kind of apply theory to it um, and talk about that. And just, just hearing how, like hearing what facts they think are the most important um, to zero in on uh, and the way that they kind of craft their, their version of the narrative around it is, is just, it's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, uh, it does though tell me something about how I teach things too, right? <laughs> um, oh yeah, for sure. Like listening to it and being like, that's not what we talked about in class. <laughs> or maybe that's a new angle that I didn't think about, you know, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the last thing that I want to talk to you about is, and maybe I should start asking this as the first question in these interviews, but, um, I, I think public scholarship is very important. I think it's, it's more important now than maybe it's ever been in the history of the world. So for that, that random person who has found this interview on Spotify or or whatever podcast platform you're listening to on tenure tracks on, uh, what would you want them to take away or to understand about your, your work? Um, so, uh, I think cybersecurity and, um, anything related to the digital realm is going to be one that on climate change, right. Is going to be, um, the most important, they're going, these two issues are going to be the most important issues for decades to come. Mm-hmm. Um, my research attempts to bring the, or keep us focused on the civilian aspect of these places, how can we uh, add protection to the language of offensive, defensive realism? How should states react to attacks? Um, and that, um, you know, a lot, the, the inequalities, the, the, the injustices that exist in our physical world do translate um, to the digital realm with even more uh, severe consequences to people who don't access, have access to that. And data, your data is the most like precious thing you own, right? Uh, it's the most precious commodity that you have. Everyone is competing for it. Every uh, social media platform, 
everything that you use, every company that does anything, um, you know, for free, you are the product. <laughs> so pay attention. <laughs> Yeah, you are the second person that I've interviewed um, for this season who have, have left us with that message that your data is is much more valuable than I think people, most people might realize. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so because we all need to pay attention to it, uh, even though I know it, I'm guilty of just I can accept. <laughs> well, I'm accepting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. So maybe read those end user license agreements and <laughs> and think about do you really need to accept all cookies from this website? <laughs> Moving on. Um, well, I've taken up a lot of your time this morning, Anwar, and so I, I want to say thank you and I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, this was a fun conversation. Hey. Andy Wilzak again. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show um, as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us um, positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. (laughs) So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, um, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.